Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, we are reminded that we tread on holy ground. We open up Your Holy Scripture. Father, remove distractions from our minds even now, Lord. Cause us to focus upon Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. I pray that as we look at Your Word and He is revealed, that we would be driven to worship Him as He is revealed, and that we would be driven to and motivated to tell people who desperately need hope about King Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. One of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. Um, Probably top five as far as the Psalms go. Psalm 2 is our text for this morning. And I want to read Psalm 2 right off the bat here. Psalm 2 verse 1 says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their courts from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warnings, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. May the Lord bless the reading of His word concerning His Son. Well, this is a great psalm for us to focus upon during this holiday season, all, every single day, but especially during Christmas as we think about Christ. So the title of this morning's message is Jesus the King. Jesus the King, because that's what this psalm really focuses our attention upon. The psalm was most likely written by David, though you wouldn't even, you wouldn't see that from the title of Psalm 2. We know this from Acts chapter 4 verse 25, which attributes these words to David. Psalm 2, in particular verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So most likely David, according to Acts 4.25, wrote this particular psalm. It's what you call a royal psalm. A psalm of coronation. Someone is being coronated here, declared to be king. It could be David, that he's speaking about himself, if he is indeed the author of Psalm 2. Or it could be a descendant of David. But you quickly, uh, it quickly becomes evident as you read the contents of Psalm 2 that it couldn't be David and it couldn't be just any human king or a descendant of David. This is not speaking of just a, some human king, but of the ultimate forever king who is Jesus Christ. Christ is the focus, because no earthly king can qualify or match what is said here in Psalm 2 about the king, who is Jesus Christ alone. So this is a psalm about Jesus, the king. Um, It is no surprise that Psalm 2 is the most quoted New Testament passage, uh, Old Testament passage in the New Testament, 
And for good reason, as the psalm focuses upon Jesus' kingship, it sits strategically in the Psalter here, after Psalm 1, which really sets the tone for the whole Psalter, Psalm 1 really focuses on, here are the two ways that everybody will walk. This is a path, people will take only one of two paths. One for the wicked and one for the righteous. And then Psalm 2 essentially tells us that the righteous are those who follow the king, who acknowledge the king. This psalm can be broken into four stanzas. And for our purposes this morning, what I want to do is I want to... I want to um, uh, set uh, these four stanzas according to four scenes, if you will, for us. And here's the outline right off the bat. I'm going to give it to you, okay? The four stanzas, which we're going to call four scenes, are first of all, in verses 1 through 3, the world's rebellion. The world's rebellion. And then in verses 4 through 6 is the father's resolve. In verses 7 through 9 is the son's reign. And then in verses 10 through 12, we see the king's requirement, the king's requirement. And what we see in Psalm 2, through these four scenes that are given to us here, is the absolute reign of King Jesus, the absolute reign of King Jesus. And beloved, I chose this psalm very deliberately and very purposefully for us this morning. Um, I did it because it's so necessary for our help And for our good, in the midst of all of the busyness of life, and especially the holiday season, for us to reflect upon the one that we worship, who is King Jesus. And it is here that we are given a a joyful but vivid and sober picture of God's purposes accomplished through Jesus Christ, who is the King. And we need to have our attention fixated upon this during Christmas time of all seasons. And we need to be reminded that uh, what Christmas really is all about. That while Christmas is a great time of wonderful um, uh, fellowship with people, um, extended family visitations, uh, wonderful traditions that we celebrate, a wonderful time of great activities and events, of gifts and shopping and so forth and all of those things, those things must not become the distraction that take us away from focusing upon Jesus. It is good to have fun, right? It is good to enjoy these things. But let's remember, even as we look to this psalm, about why we are able to have the joy that we have and the happiness that we have even on this earth. Why it is that we have hope. It is so easy in the midst of all of the distractions that come with the holiday season to not focus upon the Lord. And not only that, but it's so easy for us to forget, even when we're thinking about Jesus in our own meditations and we talk about Jesus with one another as believers, or we share about Jesus with unbelievers, people who don't know Christ. It is so easy to have a a wrong view and picture of who Jesus is and to not worship Him for who He is and to not tell people about Jesus being the king, but we present a Jesus that is a, a, um, a, a lesser version of himself in scripture as revealed in God's word. And so we need to be thinking rightly about the Lord. And that's why Psalm 2 is so important for us. And so here are the, these four scenes that present to us the absolute reign of King Jesus, that you and I might worship Christ and we might be motivated to, to call people to submit to this Jesus revealed in God's word this Christmas season, okay? So scene number one, the world's rebellion. The world's rebellion in verses one through three. Right off the bat, 
We begin with a bang here as a psalmist who is David asks a question in verse 1. And he asks, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist asks here, begins with a rhetorical question. A sudden rhetorical question, not meant so much to get an answer or to get information from those whom he's asking that question, but to to express outrage and disbelief at the fact that the world is rebelling against God and against his king. That word devising there is the same word for meditate in Psalm chapter 1 and verse 2. There in chapter 1, verse 2, Psalm 1, verse 2, the, the righteous, it says, meditate on the Word of God, and thus they are established according to the Word of God. But here in, cha- in, in Psalm 2, verse 1, the rebellious devise or plan or scheme rebellion or wickedness. This rebellion is all-inclusive and comprehensive. If you notice, both the, the masses and the rulers are rebelling against God and against His King. And the audacious nature of this rebellion is highlighted here because of who they're rebelling against here in the psalm. Look at verse 2 at the end of verse 2. It's against the Lord and against His anointed. It is against Yahweh. Yahweh. That's what the capital L-O-R-D title um, points to, to the name Yahweh, God's personal name his most precious name that reveals his, his self-existence, the fact that God depends on no one for his existence, and on the fact that God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They're rebelling against God, against Yahweh. And not only against Yahweh, but notice at the end of verse 2, against his anointed. That word anointed there comes from the Hebrew word from which we get Messiah, or anointed one. And you recall how in the Old Testament, individuals were set apart or consecrated for special tasks of ministry. And especially kings as well. They were anointed and consecrated, set apart to serve God's people. So this is God's anointed one. He is no ordinary king. He is the one that Yahweh has set apart. He is God's king. God's king. And so for them to reject God's anointed is to reject God himself. That is the great outrage of this whole thing here. And I want you to think about that right off the bat, an observation that we can make from here. You know, I hear a lot of people, even in today's society, saying, I believe in, I believe in God. I believe in God. And yet when you ask them to define that God that they believe in, they're not able to define that God according to how he is revealed in scripture, right? And even more beyond that, They believe in God and they say they believe in the Lord, but they reject Jesus whom God sent into the world. And so the outreach that the psalmist is expressing here is not only in the fact that they are rejecting God, but they are rejecting God's anointed who is Jesus Christ, as we're going to find out. You know, in our world and even over the history of mankind, people have thought of Jesus in certain ways. He's a good man. He's a a great prophet. He's a wise teacher. But they don't think that he is the king, let alone the savior of the world. They don't view Jesus that way. I'm reminded again and again, every single holiday season, and it happened again this particular holiday season, 
just attending different events. I attended an event uh, a few weeks ago where songs were being sung, such as the song that we just sang a little while ago, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the words, Glory to the newborn King who is Jesus, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. I attended an event, beloved, where people were singing that song. And yet... They don't, they don't even understand the significance of what they're, they're, they're singing. What they're singing about. Or who they are singing about. Or the implications of, if indeed this one is the king of the universe, what does that mean for their own personal lives? See, all year long, people say they believe in God, but they reject His anointed. They reject Jesus Christ revealed, right? They reject Him as king. They reject Him as Savior. They don't submit to Jesus Time of the holidays is one of the times of greatest hypocrisy, isn't it? Where people sing songs and they don't even think about what they're singing. They may attribute kingship to Jesus, but all year long they hate Him. They hate Him and they don't follow His word, let alone submit to His the fact that He is Savior and Lord. And we see this kind of insubordination, even here as the psalmist describes and looks out at the world's rebellion. It says in verse 3 that they are saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Fetters there were shackles used on the feet of of a prisoner. And the cords there may better be translated a yoke, a yoke which you put on an oxen because you own that particular animal. He was your possession. And what the psalmist is saying here in verse 3 is not that these rebels are literally in bonds, literally in bondage, but that this is how they perceive God and their king and his king, his anointed. They view God as oppressive and his king as oppressive, as enslavement, as bondage, as loss of freedom. That's how they view God and his anointed. They resent his rule over them. They don't want to submit to him. This is what describes our world, isn't it? The great rebellion that we see all around our world today. We see it in the, in the so-called atheist who claims that there is no God, let alone that there is no Jesus, right? And yet, the reality of it is, is what the atheist doesn't need is more evidence that there is a God. The problem is, is that they don't want to acknowledge a God. They're rebel sinners who don't want to acknowledge that there's a creator because that would mean that they are accountable to him for their actions. That's the problem. This rebellion is seen in the person who says, I believe in God, but all year long they ignore the word of God and twist his word for their own benefit. How many people do we see in our society today who say they believe in God, but support such things as abortion, right? And don't celebrate the beauty of life, who advocate same-sex marriage and reject God's design for marriage as revealed in His Word, who attack God's design for the family, right? And for what a home is to be comprised of from the very beginning. Beloved, we, are fu- we have a world full of rebel sinners, even those who superficially say, I believe in God. You always have to ask, what, what kind of God do you believe in? Who is your God? And what about this Jesus guy? What do you think about him? Right? We need to get people, more than at any other time, we need to ask people to define what they mean by they believe in God. All around our world, we see a world 
full of rebel sinners. Rebel sinners. This is man's fundamental problem, rebellion, that the psalmist is expressing here. And we see it all around our society. And you might say, oh, come on, preacher. Come on, preacher. You're exaggerating. Not everyone hates God. Certainly I'm sitting in here this morning listening to this outrage by the psalmist. And I don't, I don't hate God. I'm not a rebel. In fact, I'm a fairly good person. That's why I'm here this morning. That's why I pay my, my visits every Sunday morning, paying my dues to God, make sure that he blesses me in 2018. I want to make sure that I receive his blessing. I am not a rebel person. Well, let me ask you, are you perfect? Are you perfect? Can you say that you are holy as God is holy this morning? Matthew 5.48 says that you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. James chapter 2 verse 10 says that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. You see, we are all lawbreakers. We have all committed mutiny against our Maker. And that is revealed in the fact that we break His law daily in our thoughts, in our motivations, in our actions, in our words, you see. In the way that we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we don't love our neighbor genuinely and authentically and wholeheartedly. That reveals our sin. Let me ask you this morning, you who deny that you are a rebel sinner, do you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. That those who are to follow him should be these kinds of people. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Was Jesus saying that we should hate our family? That we should literally hate other people? No, he's drawing comparisons here. He's saying, in, in comparison to your love for me, do you love me supremely above anyone in your life? And I would add to that, above your possessions, and above your pursuits and your goals, and above your marriage, and above your children. All of those things must take second place to a supremely loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A failure to love, a diminished love, beloved, shows the fact that we are rebel sinners at the end of the day. We have rebelled against Him. And one of the key marks of a genuine Christian who loves the Lord is first and foremost, you daily recognize, not only at the moment of your conversion, but you recognize every single day and you're reminded of the fact that you are utterly bankrupt and unworthy before the Lord to be called His child. Amen? Every single day I'm reminded of that. That were it not for the grace of God, I could not be here. I would be helpless and hopeless. It is all about the righteousness of King Jesus, right? Wrecking to my account by faith. So we are all rebel sinners. Listen, before Christmas can truly be Christmas to us, and before you can truly appreciate the Jesus of Christmas, you must see yourself as a rebel sinner and be reminded every single day, even as a believer, that you were a rebel sinner and now by the grace of God you are a child of God by faith in Christ. You must recognize your utter bankruptcy. That's what Christmas means to me, beloved. It means that God 
in his love and his mercy and his grace performed a rescue operation for a sinner such as Kempis Hernandez by sending his son Jesus into the world that by believing in him, I now have eternal life. I have I've been reconciled to a right relationship with my maker. That's what Christmas means to us. God has done this in his goodness and in his grace. This was God's great plan through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads us into our second scene, the Father's resolve in verses 4 through 6. The Father's resolve. Despite the nations being scheming and conspiring, what does God do in response to the rebellion of the nations? Notice in verses 4 through 6, He is calm and unshaken, isn't He? He is resolved to accomplish His eternal purposes. Notice God's posture in verse 4. The nations are running around scheming and conspiring. And what does it say in verse 4? What is God's posture? He sits in the heavens. He sits in the heavens. Better yet, that word sits can be better translated enthroned. He's enthroned. We often remind one another of that as believers, right? Hey, don't worry. God is still on His what? Throne. He sits on His throne. That is the posture that God has taken here in verse 4. He's not anxious. He's not biting his nails. He is not worried or stressed out. Oh no. Oh no, the nations and even the rulers and the judges, they don't want to follow me or my king. What am I to do? He's not doing that. He sits on his throne, right? The heavens here in verse 4 are not just pointing to a place, but in this context to the highest place of unrivaled authority. One that earth cannot touch. If you will, this is the ultimate supreme court. That when there is a a decision made there at that ultimate supreme court, no one, no one, no one can counter that decision. The highest courts, the heavens is where God sits. Psalm 115 verse 2 says, Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. The next time you are anxious about what's going on in the society around us, read Psalm 115 verse 2. And, and through everything going on in our world, the question might be asked, where is your God? And we can say our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases and King Jesus is returning. Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Heaven is the highest court of rulership. Christians can rest upon the fact that our God sits enthroned on high. So that is God's posture. He rules. He's the sovereign ruler over all. But notice also God's attitude in verse 4. What is He doing? He laughs and He scoffs at them. Again, He's not sitting around biting His nails. Oh no, what am I to do? They don't like me or they don't like my king. What He does instead is He mocks them. He ridicules them. He laughs at them. And this laughter here is not some hysterical, excuse me, laughter downplaying their rebellion. This is a laughter of derision, of ridicule, of condescension towards someone. I remember going on walks at an apartment that we used to live at, oftentimes with our three boys at the time. And oftentimes as we went to this place called The Wash, we called it, in Santa Clarita, 
We would always um, approach this one house that had a huge front yard, and there were always these two little tiny rat-sized chihuahuas barking at us. <laughs> you know? And we could see them and hear them from a distance. And of course, we would all, as we, we approached it, they got louder and louder and louder, right? Like a whisper, these things barked, right? Got louder and louder and louder. We weren't scared at those little rat-looking things, right? Sorry, if you have any chihuahuas, I'm very sorry about that. Just come talk to me after. I have nothing against chihuahuas, okay? But we would mock them. I mean, what could they possibly do to us? They're as big as a mouse, right? We would ridicule them, and we would laugh at them, and we would, it was a laughter of derision and condescension. When you think about that picture, think about God in the heavens, and rebel sinners in this world thinking that somehow they got something on the Lord, and yet they are but a speck of dust, right? In the ocean, they are nothing in comparison to Almighty God. Nothing. So this is a laughter of derision, of ridicule. One pastor has written, when God laughs... It is not funny. God is not laughing with you. He is laughing at you. There is a severe aspect to the smile of God. So there is severity here in this laughter in verse 4. And this severity is seen in verses 5 through 6 in God's rebuke. Notice there in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Those words anger and fury are are, um, highlighting the wrath of God, which is God's natural and necessary response toward human sin based upon and rooted in His holy character. God must respond with anger towards sin. God must respond with fury towards sin. It's His natural response based upon His holy character, His righteous character. Notice that far from passivity... Far from indifference toward their rebellion, God expresses His righteous indignation toward uh, against their rebellion and His anger and His fury. And then He says, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I love that. But as for me, He says, you rebels may be running around, concocting plans, being an affront to my name, putting forth rules, even government rules that are anti-me as if I am silent. I am not silent. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion was originally an ancient Jebusite city in Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 5, 7, David conquers the city and eventually builds the king's palace there in Jerusalem, became the, the center of the kingdom there. You can run around, God says, wreaking havoc all you want, but my sovereign purposes are established. They are established. I want to ask you this morning, even as we look at those verses briefly, is this the God that you believe in? One who is sovereign and in control of everything? One who is unshaken and unmoved by the world's rebellion? I hear so many Christians these days So many Christians worried and anxious as if God is not sitting on his throne, as if God is somehow biting his nails up in heaven, wondering, okay, what is plan B? Because this thing did not work. I got to plan something different. 
As if God was sitting around second-guessing himself or surprised at everything that is going on. Beloved, listen to me. This psalm and the scriptures remind us of the fact that God is sovereign. He has already established his king. Amen? He has established his king. He has resolved, despite the world's rebellion, to carry out his purposes through his son. And he is mighty to save and to keep his promises. Just think about it, 300 plus fulfilled prophecies told about the Messiah. Is he not mighty and faithful to fulfill his promises? And yet we get so shaken by a law that passes, right? By a president who can't watch his words, who's tweeting things left and right, right? We get so shaken as if he was the one sitting on the throne and not God, Listen, we don't put our trust in in our president or in the Supreme Court or in any other legislative body. We put our faith and trust in King Jesus. He is our King. He's our sovereign one. Now, how does God fulfill his purposes? That's our third scene in verses 7 through 9. It is through the Son's reign. The Son's reign is scene number 3. In verses 7 through 9, notice back in Psalm 2 and verse 7. These are great, powerful words. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Here we see the son's reign God has set apart his king, his anointed one, and he is unique like no other. And there are some things highlighted about Jesus, the king. First of all, he is God's son, if you notice in verse 7. There, King Jesus speaks in verse 7, and he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He, the Father God, God the Father, said to me, the Son, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that today there in verse 7 does not mean that the Son, Jesus, became the Son at some point, even let alone in this psalm as this is being spoken. The passage is often quoted this particular verse uh, in the New Testament to affirm the truth of Jesus' special relationship to the Father and His preeminent status as God's eternal Son. Jesus has always been the Son of God. This passage is quoted later on in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 5 to point to the Son's supremacy, where there the author asks, For to which of the angels did he ever say, the Father, ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? And the answer is to no one. No angel is greater than the Son of God. He is preeminent and supreme. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. He's greater than Moses. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than the, uh, than the old covenant, as he is the inaugurator of the new covenant. In Acts chapter 13, verse 32, this is quoted again. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has thus fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Some people say, well, there is speaking about the resurrection in Acts chapter 13. And it says there that he became the son at the resurrection. But that couldn't have been the case, right? Do you remember prior to the resurrection, 
When Jesus was baptized, right, inaugurating his ministry on earth, there was a voice heard in heaven at his baptism. And what did God the Father say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He did not become the son at the resurrection. He was always the son. Jesus did not become the son at his resurrection, at the incarnation, beloved. At some point, uh, God the Father bore the son in some point in time, as a human father does a human son. Jesus is eternally the son of God. He is preeminent. This king through whom God rules is his eternal son. The Nicene Creed puts it this way. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, not made. He was not created at some point in time. He has always been in fellowship with the Father, always from eternity past. What the title Son communicates then, among other things, is the special relationship, the real relationship that He has with His Father from eternity, and the fact that the Son is eternally in loving and voluntary submission to His Father. What is the point? When you think about the Christ of Christmas, remember that He is the very eternal Son of God. Do you understand that Jesus didn't become the Son of God at the virgin birth? He has always been the Son, right? He has always been with the Father in fellowship. And upon His incarnation, He clothed Himself in humanity. He added humanity to His deity. He did not cease to be eternally God as well. He has always been. And what I find so beautiful about this is that this King that I worship is the one who has come to earth after experiencing eternal fellowship with his Father so that by dying on the cross for my sins and me trusting in him, I can be invited into the wonderful fellowship of the triune God. Do you ever think about that during Christmas time? That by faith in Jesus Christ, you have been invited into a reconciled relationship with the Almighty God of the universe. What a great, great reality. So who is this King? The Son who reigns, He is the Son of God. He is also, look at verse 8, the inheritor of everything. He is the inheritor of everything. God says, ask of me. This is God the Father speaking here in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Here you have God the Father, who is the, the creator and the owner of it all, taking pleasure in giving Jesus, His Son, everything as His possession, as His inheritance. Jesus is the inheritor of the whole kingdom to rule and to reign. It all belongs to Jesus. And if you are a Christian this morning, you belong to Him. You belong to Him. So who is this King? He is the Son of God. He is the inheritor of everything. He is the final judge in verse 9. Look at there. God speaks, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Both of these actions of breaking them with a rod of iron and shattering them like earthenware describe how the king will defeat his enemies definitively and thoroughly and beyond remedy. And we have two great pictures here. 
First of all, Jesus is a good shepherd. The king is a good shepherd who tenderly cares for his people. But for those who are rebellious, he will not use a loving rod to guide and instruct them. He will break them with a rod of iron and crush his enemies one day. Secondly, he is a wise potter who makes masterful works of art. But for those who are rebellious, he will shatter them one day like earthenware. That's how fragile humanity is in the hands of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will render judgment definitively and thoroughly and beyond remedy upon his enemies. When you think about the Christ of Christmas, beloved, is this who you think of? The one who is the Son of God? The one who owns everything and possesses everything? Who's going to deliver the final blow someday to his enemies on judgment day? Is that who you think of when you look at that little manger, King Jesus? You think of the King of the universe. Jesus is not, listen to me, the wimpy, punk Jesus that our society makes him out to be. Is he? He is not. Yes, he was a baby once, but he is the eternal Son of God who has inherited everything and will one day judge the world. The next time you share the gospel with somebody, yes, tell them about the love of God in Christ Jesus, but also tell them about the fact that if they don't respond, turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, there is judgment coming and they will not find a Savior who is any longer patient with them. Tell them, beloved, that He is a judge. That yes, He came humbly, but He will return in power. That yes, He came to die, but He will return to punish That yes, he came to serve, but he will return to reign. The Christ of Christmas is the exalted king of the universe. And we need to be telling people about that Jesus and not the the, uh, miniature version of Jesus that people can stick in their back pocket and carry around with them. That they can manage. That they're comfortable with. This is not the popular Jesus of Western culture, is it? That we see in Psalm 2 who is the Son of God, the Inheritor, the Final Judge, Possessor of Heaven and Earth. What do we find in our world today? A Jesus who exists to meet my every selfish want and my need. Right? Who would never call me to do anything else that I don't think is best for, my, for me, according to my own opinion. What kind of Jesus do we want? A Jesus who gives me health, wealth, and prosperity for my selfish purposes. Who would never put me in uncomfortable situations, let alone allow difficult trials in my life. Oh, we wouldn't articulate it that way verbally, right? I know I don't, but sometimes I live my life that way. And so do you. We have a little Jesus, not a great Jesus. In our world, we hear of a Jesus who's our cosmic genie, gives us everything that we want, because after all, his greatest concern is that I would be comfortable, happy, and fulfilled according to how I define happiness. Because as we're going to see at the end of the psalm, he does want our happiness. The issue is, how do you define that happiness? And in whom do you find that happiness and fulfillment? People want a Jesus who's who's your personal psychologist, your consultant, right? Who will always be there to listen to you, places no responsibility upon you. He gives you suggestions and not requirements and demands upon your life that may actually cost you something. When we read about the Jesus of Scripture, what does he call people to? He says in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following, right? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. It's going to cost you everything. 
Yes, salvation is free to us, meaning that we cannot earn it, right? We cannot gain God's favor. It's all upon the, based upon the death of Jesus Christ, his atoning work on our behalf. But it wasn't free to God, right? It wasn't free to him. And beloved, it's going to cost you your whole life if you surrender to him. Which leads us to our final scene. The king's requirement. The king's requirement. What does this exalted king require of us? Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. These are sobering words here, aren't they? Sobering words. And through the words of David, really speaking on behalf of the king, we find the king's requirement here. And it comes to us by way of five commands and five imperatives, which in some tell us that in light of who the king is, you and I must surrender. We must repent from our sins. We must surrender to him and to his lordship. You know what happened in ancient times? Oftentimes when there was a a conquering army approaching a lesser army, there would be an ambassador that would be sent ahead of that powerful army that you knew was going to render judgment upon, lay down the hammer on that army. And that ambassador would be be sent into that uh, country and they would announce that the king is coming. The king is coming. We are coming in. They would announce the coming of the king and they would also warn of utter ruin upon that nation if they did not voluntarily submit to the king's rule and to that nation. So it is here, the psalmist is is an ambassador pleading. Look at verse 10. Now therefore... In other words, in view of God's king and his coming kingdom, O kings, show discernment. In other words, be wise. Wise up. Take warning. In other words, stop and consider what has been said here, O judges of the earth. I find it interesting that he calls out the judges of the earth because he has just been exhorting them of the fact that the ultimate judge is Jesus Christ himself, right? Who's going to render punishment upon those who rebel. He says, you judges are nothing. You need to take warning, pay attention, stop and consider here about the fact that the judge is coming, right? Such great truths, in other words, says the psalmist, require a response. And may I remind us, even during this Christmas season, you have opportunities to share about Christ with unbelieving family. You have opportunities to share Christ with people in your workplace. You have opportunities to share Christ with neighbors that you may have. Please make sure that you share the good news and you remind them of the fact that that message concerning who Jesus is requires a response, an obedient response. And how you do it needs to be gracious, right? How you do it needs to be merciful, remembering that you and I were not for someone from a human standpoint sharing the gospel with us. We would be hopeless and helpless as well. But remind them, beloved, of the fact that there is, there is a response that is required of them, right? And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's functioning as the ambassador for the king and saying, you need to wise up. And what do you need to do? Look at verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. 
That word worship there means to serve. Serve the Lord with reverence. With affectionate awe. From the heart. With respect. With honor. Serve Him. In other words, rebel sinners must quit serving themselves and instead serve King Jesus. And instead of viewing His kingship as oppressive and as bondage, they are to rejoice, notice in verse 11, with trembling. The word trembling there has the idea of humbling oneself, of being lowly and doing this, uh, doing this with joy. I love this. I love this. I have often shared the gospel with people in the past, and often they've, they, they view Jesus' lordship as, as oppressive, as bondage. They find little joy in giving up what they call or define as their freedom for coming under a master such as Jesus who places re- demands upon their life. But do you realize what he is saying here? Do it with rejoicing. I often think about Matthew eleven twenty eight and what Jesus says there. He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You have these loads that you're carrying, right? You might say that to sinners today as we share the gospel with them. You're carrying heavy loads, aren't you? Prevailing sins. You're enslaved to your own rebellion, to your own self-worship. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest says, take me instead of those things. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen to what Jesus is saying there in Matthew eleven twenty eight and following. He's saying, you're already caring. You are not free. People think in today's society that they are free. Listen to me. If you are not following Jesus, having given your life to Him, you are not free. You're a slave to your own sin. Do you understand? That is a greater burden. Greater burden for you. There's no way that you can pay for your own sins. Jesus says, come to me. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you rather serve sin that promises momentary pleasure ending in eternal despair this Christmas if you don't know Christ? Or Jesus who promises present and eternal happiness beyond what you can even begin to understand and comprehend? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And notice verse 12. Jesus doesn't only just want service. It's not just service that the king wants, but he wants an affectionate service and worship. This is highlighted by what he says in verse 12. Do homage to the Son. Literally, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Brings back the imagery of the olden days, right? Where the conquered subjects would kiss the hand or feet of the victorious king as a, as a gesture of submission and of allegiance. But see, in the case of those people, they had no choice with some of these tyrant kings. They had no choice. They, were, they had to do it forcefully, right? With no heart, but they had to do it. Well, certainly Jesus the king requires allegiance and submission, but he wants us to have affection for him, right? To love him. This is affectionate allegiance that we are required to have toward the king. I want to ask you today, do you worship Him this way? If you call yourself a follower of Christ, you've been coming to church for a long, long time, 
You visit every Sunday morning. You go through the motions. You're involved in various programs and activities in the church. I want to ask you from the heart, do you worship Jesus daily? Do you cherish him and treasure him? Do you kiss the son's hand daily? Yeah, there's going to be struggles and there's going to be difficulties in our life, right? And seasons of weakness, sure. Seasons of loss of perspective. But do you always return to this, I need to love and cherish and treasure my Jesus. So that even if I don't possess all things that my society says that I need to have in order to be fulfilled or be happy, I am content in Christ because in Him are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm content in Him regardless of whether circumstances are favorable or unfavorable. Regardless of whether relationships are everything that I would want them to be or not, Jesus is my all in all. I relish in the treasures that are found in Jesus Christ. Is that you this morning? You kiss the Son's hand. Because that's a call for us as believers as well. Well, there's a warning here for those who do not kiss the Son's hand, who do not worship Him in verse 12. You can choose to surrender willingly, or you will do it forcefully, forcibly and detrimentally, right? Look at verse 12. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in the way. Why? For His wrath may soon be kindled. Meaning that His wrath will be shown someday. There's going to come a time of reckoning, in other words. Of reckoning. I'm always looking for opportunities, as I'm sure you parents can identify with, to teach lessons to my kids, right, about life. And recently, my little Chloe, who's five years old, she's a special needs little girl. She's not able to blow up her own balloon uh, by herself, but she loves balloons. Chloe loves balloons. You give her a balloon, it's better than a $200 gift, okay? She loves balloons, plays with it all day long. So I was trying to teach her how to blow up a balloon, and I began to blow this thing and blow this thing and bigger and bigger and bigger. But I'm trying to show her some technique there and how to do that. And at one point she says to me, Daddy, don't blow too much. Gonna pop. Don't do it. And I kind of paused, right? Held the air on the balloon. I said, oh, sweetheart, Daddy knows. It's going to be fine. You know? (laughs) Yes. I didn't listen to the mouth of, right, wisdom. So I kept blowing and blowing, trying to teach her technique and all of that. And eventually what happened? Right in my face, right? And poor Chloe, she didn't say, I told you so. It was worse. She starts crying. So now her stinking father popped her balloon, right? She could have told me, I told you, right? I told you. Eventually it's going to pop. That's the idea here, beloved, in verse 12. The wrath of God, right, is mounting up and mounting up and mounting up, and eventually it's going to pop. God's wrath will be kindled. will be kindled. It will be manifested and shown. And that's what's going to happen upon Jesus' return someday. Jesus is going to definitively deal with those who will not submit to his rule. And think about that. Again, we often think of this Jesus as a, a loving Jesus who would never dare act mean or get angry at me. And yet we must never forget that Jesus commands our absolute allegiance and will tolerate, listen to me, no rivals in our hearts. He wants to be treasured above anything in our own hearts and lives. And He requires everything from us. Some of you have rivals this morning to Christ in your hearts. Coddling sin, 
prevailing sins that you will not let go of? Things that you know that if you give that up, it would mean that potentially you are not going to receive what you think will get you happiness, right? Some of you are coddling sin, coddling relationships. Maybe you think materialism, certain possessions are going to get you happiness. Maybe you have certain goals and aspirations. Maybe some of you just love the world too much. The world trumps Jesus Christ. And I graciously appeal to you this morning, lay down your arms, lay down your weapons, lay down self-worship, lay down the life-sucking leech called sin. That's what sin does, isn't it? That's what it does. Over time, you think sin keeps lying to you and telling you, I will satisfy, I will fulfill, I will give you happiness. And we give in and we give in and we give in. And then we reach the end of our lives and we realize that we threw our life away, that we wasted our lives. That's what happens to many people in our world, you understand. They don't want to give up their sin and bow the knee to the Son. Worship the Son this morning, lest you perish. Give your life to Him. God sent His Son Jesus into the world that you would not perish, but that you would have eternal life. And eternal life is first and foremost a reconciled relationship with your Creator, you see. You know the verse, right? John 3.16? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Son came into the world as an overflow of the Father's love, so that by turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins. We can be rescued from our sin, no longer to serve the master of self, but the master who is Jesus Christ. That's not of works, by the way. It's all of grace. You cannot earn salvation, right? You cannot do anything to earn favor before God. It is all based upon the life and death and resurrection of King Jesus. Trusting in Him. Embracing God's gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's how you escape from God's coming wrath. Worship the Son who is King Jesus. You want to be happy in this life? Look at the promise at the end of verse 12. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What was a refuge? A refuge was a hiding place, a place of security, of of protection. That was a refuge. The psalmist says, how blessed are those who find refuge in the king. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The words here remind us of Psalm 1, 1 as well. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, but, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That man is happy, who dwells upon the word of God, who saturates his mind with the word of God. That is the blessed or happy person. The Psalm 2 ends in the same way that Psalm 1 began, reminding every single person, That rather than escaping from Jesus, you must find your refuge in Jesus. Rather than running from Him, you should joyfully run to Him. To Him, who is the King. It was June 6th, 1944. D-Day 
when the Allied forces invaded Normandy and in so doing ensured victory in World War II. And yet historians, if you read history, will tell you that it took another, uh, it continued, that war continued for another 11 months until what was known as V-Day, 11 months later. And many, many people died until that peace treaty was signed, right? That's when true peace came. But everyone knew after D-Day that the Allied forces had won, that the inauguration of their victory was in motion, and it was just a matter of time, right? It was just a matter of time. Can I remind us this Christmas that that is what Jesus did on the cross and upon his resurrection and ascension? He inaugurated his kingdom some 2,000 years ago. Listen to me, guaranteeing victory and fulfillment of God's plan from hundreds and hundreds of years before and even from before the foundation of the world. He inaugurated his kingdom. And one day, he's coming back. He's coming back. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let this Christmas, beloved, be a Christmas when you focus upon the King and His kingdom and make sure that we are giving an accurate picture of who Jesus is to those who would ask to give them an account for the hope that is in us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we are people who don't deserve Your salvation who don't deserve anything this Christmas. And yet you have given us the greatest gift in your Son, the exalted Christ. Father, thank you for the reminder through Psalm 2 that he is the one that we are called to worship, that he is the one that we await, that he is the one that we are called to proclaim that disciples would be made as your Spirit moves in the hearts of sinners and quickens them to be raised from spiritual death to life by faith in Christ. Lord, help us to be eager to worship Him and to be eager to tell others about Him and to do so with compassion, Lord, with mercy, as the ambassador here in Psalm 2 does, on behalf of the King. Help us to remember, Lord, that were it not for Your grace in our hearts and for human beings from our perspective who came into our lives and shared the gospel, we would not be here, Lord. Who are we? Such were some of us. But we were saved, we were washed, we were sanctified in the name of the Lord. Help us to be those who are willing agents and instruments of sharing Christ with other people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.